All right, so before I just jump into tonight's passages, I feel like if I'm going to talk about justice and um, mercy and loving the poor, that I need to do like a 10-minute on-ramp, if you would just be gracious with me before I even get into God's word tonight, because um, you guys know this, churches have divided like crazy over justice issue. I mean, if you were alive in 2020, uh, unless you were living under a rock, like it was some of the most polarized times in our country, and not just in our country, it was some of the most polarized times in our church. Um, and justice is something that really matters to God. Uh, something, uh, it's also, this is why you see it uh, so deeply interwoven in society and in people. Like, people care about this because God cares about it. And uh, I just feel like I just want to take a moment and I want to, like, take you on the journey of, from a cultural perspective, why we need to care about this as Christians. And so, uh, let me start off by saying this. If you, uh, I mean, you guys may be in this place, some of you in the room, or maybe you have friends, but if you have paid attention at all to the state of Christianity in America, you know that there is a pandemic and an epidemic of Christians who are leaving the faith and deconstructing due to all sorts of issues. Is that true? Uh, Maybe you're not a Christian in the room, and um, you've just... You know, you know of people who have left the faith, or maybe you are, you would classify yourself as a Christian in the room, and you would say, like, man, I'm on the brink of just, like, tapping out on this. Um, but I read, there's a survey, and this is kind of unanimous, uh, these statistics, but in 1970, so that's not that long ago, it's about 50 years ago, I don't know if you know this, 90% of people in America in 1970 at least identified as Christian. 90%. So fast forward to the lovely year of 2020, that number dropped to 56%. So in just 50 years, uh, it went from 90% of people in America identifying as Christian to just 56%. And then projections show that in 50 more years, so within one century or 100 years, that number will drop probably to as low as 35%. And so if you're just like looking at a graph, I could show you a graph, but it just does this. (laughs) You know, like people are just leaving in droves, leaving Christianity. You guys experience this in your own circle? Are you seeing it? It's happening all over the place. Now, what's complicated by, about this is people are leaving for all sorts of different issues. Um, so, like, if you actually, like, dig into, like, why are people leaving the church, uh, there's theological questions that um, people are having, like, how is the God of the Old Testament at all like Jesus, and how does that make sense if Christians, you say this is the word of God, and all, all that stuff, which I think there are, are winsome answers to and all that stuff, but people are, like, Jeez, if this is God, peace, I'm out. There's theological questions. Uh, there's behavior and hypocrisy that just the world looks at the church and is like, you guys claim to be a people of love. You claim to be devoted to Jesus. I'm looking at you. I don't see any of it. You gossip just as much as me. You complain just as much as me. So people just look at the church and they see hypocrisy and they go, I'm out. So that's, well, that's a reason. There's other people who are experiencing church hurt. Uh, I think it's sad we've had more like public pastor failures it feels like than ever, like it just feels like you just wait a month and the next big pastor is having a moral failure or some sort of compromise and people just go, I'm just out. Um, and maybe you are somebody in the room who's experienced church hurt. There's the treatment of the LGBTQ plus community um, that um, people who would identify as gay or transgender would just say, I have just been massively hurt by the church. And as somebody who has a brother who's gay and has a husband, I really sympathize with that. Actually, this um, past weekend, my brother had a friend over who's not a Christian, uh, and he's gay, and he has no problem talking about it. And it's, there's some really funny things that uh, we were having conversations about. But it's interesting. He saw like a book on my brother's bookshelf, and it was a Christian book. And he's like, where's the chapter on homophobia? 
And he was like saying it as a joke, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I get that. But it was tense, you know? It's like these, are like, these are the things the world is saying. But one of the things that caught my attention more than, I would say, more than anything, was a lot of people are leaving the church because there's a failure on the part of the church to actually follow Jesus' teachings to do justice and mercy. Where they look at the church and they go, like, you're so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Like, there's no, there's no concern for the city. There's no concern for the poor. You guys just care about your spiritual disciplines, not sinning this week. Like, you just care about your Christian friend group. And you're just kind of like a, like a Christian version community that is not really any different than me. And when there's actually pain in the world of, like, people, like, suffering from injustice, you're just like, you just don't really care. And so people say, like, here's the thing. People who don't know Jesus know what's in the Bible, and they know what we should be doing as Christians. They may not know it as well, but they know it well enough to go, I know what Jesus was about, and I'm looking at you, and I don't see it. Like, what's going on? So there's like this, it's just a lack of integrity. So people are having all sorts of issues. Um, Scott McKnight, he says this, um, speaking to Christians doing justice and mercy, he says, when private personal spirituality overwhelms working together for the kingdom dream of Jesus, and what he's referring to is Christians working for the kingdom of God, which is a society permeated with God's love and justice, he goes, Christianity becomes personal without the person. And it becomes God without grace. And what he's really getting at, he goes, people are looking, generally speaking, at the church, and he goes, it just, there's something about the church that just feels void of Jesus. When the church itself is supposed to be the place that's supposed to, like, manifest the life of Jesus. And so what happens is, the world um, is, like, because humans are made in the image of God and they want to see justice, like, here's, what, here's one of the things that I was thinking about. Non-Christians, people who don't know Jesus, seek God's kingdom... They just don't have the king. We as Christians, we have the king, but we don't seek God's kingdom. Do you get what I'm saying? And so people are, are sitting there, and oftentimes the world is outpacing the church when it comes to justice, when the church should be outpacing the world when it comes to justice. And what's interesting is in the early church, uh, when, the, when Christianity took off, that's what attracted people to the church. It's like, they just do things way differently. They care for the poor in ways nobody's ever seen. And now people look at the church and they're like, it just looks like Hillsong worship everywhere, which is great. I love Hillsong worship. But it's just, something's changed. You get my point? So listen, I think there's part of this that's an unfair critique um, because you could go like, well, how many of people who claim to be Christians are actually Christians, have the spirit of God living inside of them and are actually, like, I do think there's a remnant and there are faithful Christians living in America who are seeking God, loving the poor, like, fighting against injustice, fighting for justice. I think there's absolutely that, but I think there is actually justifiable criticism from the world on the part of the church. Can we just acknowledge that for a second? And there's a couple different things if you're living here in America. One, uh, the reason I think there's justifiable criticism is because um, just our past history here in America. And I'm going to be speaking very specifically to white majority church culture. I'm not talking about the black church when I say our past history lacks integrity. But here in America, the white church, generally speaking, which has been majority culture, has just not had a good reputation. Um, it's interesting, uh, MLK, he noted that one of the biggest obstacles to justice being given to the black community wasn't necessarily just white people, it was the white church. 
Because he was looking at the church like, hey, we're part, like, we are like the Jesus people. You want to like partner with us in seeking like justice for African Americans in this country? And this is what he says about uh, white Christians. He says, first, so this is in his uh, a letter to a Birmingham jail. So if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's incredible. But this is a little quote out of it. He says, first, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have, almost, uh, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the, uh, or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. Which, and what he's getting at here is like, just keep things, you know, like, good. Like, they're like, let's just do order, like, that justice stuff, it just complicates things. Like, let's just not engage with that. He says, who prefers a negative peace, which is how he refers to it, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of tension but justice. Who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your, me- your methods of direct action. Does that not sound like a direct quote out of 2020? It's like, I agree with your method. Like, I don't agree with, I agree with what you're picturing, just not your methods. The same problem was happening there. And then he says, who paternalistically feels like he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. It's like, hey, it's just not a good time for this. Let's just keep order in the church. So we just have a, like, there's just a dark past, you know? Like, the civil rights movement was not that long ago. All this stuff playing, like, this was not that long ago. And then fast forward, the reason why the church criticizes the world is because there's uh, a current reality to the state of the church. So you fast forward to 2016 and 2020, when racial pain was, um, it's always been there, but it kind of had like a hot spot in a moment with like, those are political seasons, it's like all sorts of stuff. Um, And the world is like lamenting, having pain, like, you know, um, and what's happening is, the world is looking at the church and they're like, hey, are you guys going to do something, say something, like anything? And then what happens is the world is met with apathy by the church. It's like, I just don't really care. I just like, I want to go do my devotions. Is that cool? We're met with indifference or at worst even hostility. Where we just like, the world is fighting for like justice and like they're fighting for like their version of the kingdom of God and we're just like, we're throwing bombs at them of like labeling them all sorts of names because we just, it's just like an unfaithfulness. And so what happens is when there's extreme injustice in the world, the church has been known to freeze and do nothing or to fight. It's like we just like, we don't, we can't get on the same page about justice, so let's just like fight with one another. And then the world is like, look at the church. They can't even get things together. They just fight when justice is being brought up. Does that ring true? A little bit? So because of past history and current realities, people are saying if this is Jesus and if this is Christianity and if this is the church, I want nothing to do with it. And we just have to sit there and acknowledge that that's what the world is saying, whether it's right or wrong and probably a little bit of both. Okay, so here we go. Well, what, how do we respond as God's people? What do we do? And I think there's a couple of things that I want to talk with you tonight. One, I think we need to regain our integrity back. Um, Not with our words, but with our actions. And I think the solution to that is recovering um, a biblical vision of what justice and mercy is. 
where we look at Jesus, we look at the scriptures and like, all right, what did you say? And we're going to obey you and we're going to regain our integrity back and our witness to the world by actually obeying Jesus. And then we need to commit ourselves afresh to following Jesus in the way that he said. So a couple caveats before um, I jump in because I know this is a hot topic. Listen, if you're going to listen to me, I'm just going to ask this of you as you listen to me in kindness. Please don't listen to me through a political lens. Like, is he coming? Is he a liberal or is he a conservative? You know, like, don't listen to me through a, a political lens because that's how these conversations go south. It's like, he said justice, he's a liberal. He said social justice, he's really a liberal. I'm not talking, I'm, I'm not, like, I don't have liberal categories for any of this right now or conservative categories. I'm just asking you to, to listen to me through a kingdom lens, not a political lens. Is that fair? Okay, that'll save all of us a ton of conversation. It'll be awesome. <laughs> so, um, and then second, okay, I'm going to do something a little risky tonight, and I'm gonna, it's going to take more work from you, and I'm going to ask you to just go there with me in it. So typically uh, when somebody's preaching, they have like one passage, maybe with some other stuff around it, and they do like a lot of conversation around one passage, and I feel like God was saying to me, he's like, listen, I want less of your words and more of mine in tonight's sermon. And so he goes, I just want you to present to 710 what I say. And then tell them to go and do likewise. And I'm telling you, God's already wrestled with me in that. So when I say you tonight, I'm including me, but I've done the work. I really mean this humbly to like sit with God in this. And so I'm going to like try to push it on you. Um, but I'm going to push Jesus's words on you and ask you to examine yourself in a sense of a mirror of like, where are you at when it comes to this? Is that fair? Because here's the, here's the reality. Justice in the Bible, it is littered throughout the scriptures. Um, but often it's not littered in our lives. And so I, we're just gonna, we're gonna go for it. And here's the thing. I printed out all my verses tonight. You have two pages of my notes. My goal is for you to follow along with me. Um, and listen, the next 10 minutes... Just engage your mind, like say, like, I'm going to engage, this might, I'm not going to have a ton of illustrations, I'm just going like, to hit you with it. Does that sound good? Uh, and then take this home, and then meditate on it, and then pray through it, and then ask God, like, just like, engage with it. So here we go. Old Testament. Uh, let's define some terms. Justice and mercy. The word justice in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word mishpat. And so uh, that word literally means to get to work uh, out in your life, a way of living that gives people their rights and to work for people and what God has said, as a human, they deserve this. Uh, whether that's their dignity, food, love, relationship, there are things that God has given us as humans that God, like there are rights as humans regardless of anything else. Um, and so justice is to work in your life to give people their rights. Now I would say that's within the people of God and it's out in the world. Mercy is the Hebrew word, okay, here we go. Hopefully there's no seminary students in here, but kesed, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and it's the whole idea of doing acts of justice with the attitude of compassion and merciful love. So scriptures will talk about doing justice and mercy. Justice is the activity of doing justice, and mercy is more about the attitude of the heart. It's to do it with joy. Scripture says, bless, you know, I, I'm gonna misquote it, but um, you know, I think it's in First John where it says like, Obey me and my commandments are not burdensome. Like there's a joy to it. Like following Jesus isn't burdensome. Doing justice isn't burdensome. It's like there's like a joy to it. So that's what I'm referring to. All right, so Old Testament. What does the Old Testament say about, ju about justice? There is tons of stuff. And I literally only could like pick six things because for the sake of time. So 
the first thing that I want to point out to you is that justice reflects God's character. Let's just start with God himself. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18 says, for the Lord your God is God of God, is, is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Thank Jesus for that. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. I love this. Right off the bat in the Old Testament, God does not just have a heart for his people, but how his people are going to love the outsider and the foreigner and the people who are oppressed in their nations to come and find refuge in God's people. Justice reflects God's character. Second thing, believe it or not, God requires that you do justice. So this isn't like, hey guys, like just part of like your thankfulness to me is like, could you just do some acts of justice out in the world? You know, like it's not like this like sprinkle on your life just to add some flavor. It's like God requires, like he requires you to do justice. Micah 6, 8, and what does the Lord, what's the word? Require. Require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God which means I don't know if you can walk humbly with God without doing justice. Third, um, this is kind of extreme, but I think it kind of makes the point that God cares about it. In the Old Testament law, there was a curse on you for anyone who withheld justice from the weak. So uh, Deuteronomy 27, 19 says this, cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And then, so they're hearing the law, and then they go, amen, amen. Amen to that curse. So there was, like, from the beginning, God's people, it's like, listen, you're, like, there's a curse on you if you don't, if you withhold justice from people. That's a pretty strong statement. Um, Number four, God commands you to be just by speaking up for human rights. Uh, We know that culture silences voices. I should say this, power silences voices that don't agree with the people who are in position of power. Uh, which is why the white church in time of MLK silenced the black church. It's like, we have power, like, we just silence the voices. But scripture says, as Christians uh, and as followers of Jesus, we are to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves for the rights of all who are destitute. So we're we're not commanded to do justice. We're we're commanded to speak up for justice issues. Uh, Number five, this was so fascinating to me. So Job, if you've been around the church, you might be familiar with Job, but he suffered a lot. Like literally everything in his life was taken from him except his wife uh, because of uh, Satan's work in his life. And um, Job, this is so interesting. When he is lamenting to God and goes, why the heck is this happening? And he goes, I'm a godly man. And he goes, I'm a godly man because I do justice. Which is what's interesting. If I ask people all the time, like, what makes you like a godly person? Or, like, how's your walk with Jesus? It's like, dude, I'm killing it on you version. Uh, I haven't looked at porn this week. Uh, it, you know what I'm saying? It's like, man, I just feel like I'm a righteous man. I'm like, that's obviously part of it. Uh, but Job says, look what he says. Because I rescued the poor who cried for help. This is why I'm a righteous man. And the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Job goes, God, I'm righteous. I'm a just man. Could you say that about yourself? Food for thought. 
All right, here we go. We're going to say the word. Number six, God loves social justice and has established his throne on it. A reminder, listen to me from a biblical perspective, not a uh, political perspective. So in the Old Testament, you'll see, if you, you just read, like, just read it, you'll see that God says, do righteousness and justice, righteousness and justice, righteousness and justice. They're always coupled together. And uh, Tim Mackey, who, if you guys have, are familiar with the Bible Project, or Tim Keller, who's just a very just thoughtful pastor, um, they argue that those words, uh, when they're combined, what God's really talking about, the best English translation for that is social justice. So when God says, blessed are you if you do righteousness and justice, or do righteousness and justice, or you haven't done righteousness and justice, he's saying, just replace that word with social justice. So if you do that, Psalm 33.5, the Lord loves social justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Psalm 89, 14, social justice is the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. And just as I wrap up the Old Testament, here's uh, what I want to say that's very interesting. If you read the Old Testament, God's measurement about the faithfulness of his community has pretty much boiled down to two things. One, are you worshiping the other nation's idols, idolatry? And two, are you loving the poor? It's like, that's it. It's like, if you're not loving the poor, you're not being faithful. If you're, if you're worshiping other idols, you're not being faithful. But it's pretty much those two things, which I, would, I always thought was interesting. It's like, what if you measured your health, your spiritual maturity by whether or not you were uh, committing idolatry or loving the poor? Different measurement from Scripture. But Corey, I'm not an Old Testament person. I'm a follower of Jesus. Isn't the Old Testament over, fulfilled, and yes and no? <laughs> um, all right, let's go to Jesus' teachings. You guys hanging in? Are you guys with me? All right. Good job, guys. Okay, here we go. Uh, Jesus' teachings. All right, I want to pause. If you are a Christian, what you, the, the person you claim to know and to imitate is Jesus. Like, this is like where rubber meets the road. Like, if you are a follower of Jesus... It means you do what Jesus said and what, how Jesus lived you're trying to imitate. 1 John 2.6, you can write it down. I didn't put it here, but it says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So it's like, well, what, how did Jesus live? It's like, well, let's, let's go for it. Uh, Jesus' first sermon. So typically, if somebody's like launching a movement and their first sermon is setting the tone, it's probably pretty important, Right? So let's see how Jesus' first sermon, this is how he opens it up. Luke 4, 18 through 21. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's his first sermon. Skip down to verse 21. He said, he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's like, okay, I got, I, Jesus, you're setting the tone. I get it. All right, Jesus' most famous sermon. So like, if you're like new to Christianity, you're like, how do I follow Jesus? And if somebody says, read the Sermon on the Mount, they're robbing you of what it means to follow Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, this is like how, what it means to follow Jesus. Guess how it starts. Here we go, Luke 6. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who, are, who hunger, for you will be satisfied. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. I'm not going to explain all that, what it means, but you'll get the theme. Matthew 5, 6, which is Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, God blesses, who, who does God bless? 
Those who hunger and thirst for what? Justice. Justice, for they will be satisfied. Which, by the way, side note, if you want to fast, that's a great verse to keep on you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, because that person will be satisfied. All right, so you got Jesus' first sermon, his most famous sermon. All right, uh, Jesus' most offensive critics, uh, offense, excuse me, offensive critiques of empty and false religion is around justice. So like, when Jesus just got mad, he got mad about issues of justice. Sorry, that should be number three. Just ignore it and move on. It says, uh, woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you. If Jesus says woe to you, that's, like, that's, that's not a good sign. <clears throat> woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all their kinds of garden herbs. You tithe 10%. Woe to you. Why? But you neglect, you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. I picture Jesus going, hey, modern day, I'm like, woe to you. Woe to me. You tithe 10% to the church? It's like, well, yeah. You like do your devotions? Woe to you. What? But you don't love the poor. You should have done those things without leaving that undone. You know what I'm saying? It's pretty, pretty heavy. Uh, Jesus calls us to reprioritize parties around the poor. It's like, who was at your Super Bowl party? Oh, no. <laughs> Look what he says. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. It's like, well, yeah, that's why I do these parties, you know. <laughs> but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you will be blessed. And I just want to say this about this verse. Jesus actually meant that. It's not just like, hey, just so you know, like once here and there, you should just try to invite some people that, you know, are poor. Like, that'll be really good. Like Jesus really meant, he's not against friends, he's not against relatives, but he's saying like, listen, when you throw a party, evaluate who you invite. Because my kingdom is about the least being first and the first being last. Okay, I'm going to keep going. You guys still with me? Yeah. All right. I'm going to teach on this in a couple weeks. Jesus' strongest warning about the final judgment is around justice and mercy. So I'm not going to read the passage because it's too long. You can read it yourself. Um, Jesus literally says himself, the dividing line between the sheep and the goats, the sheep enter eternal life, the goats enter eternal destruction. He goes, sheep, you love the poor, enter the kingdom. Goats, you didn't love the poor. Enter destruction. Jesus said it, not me. Do you get what I'm saying? Then I'm like, shoot. Who's the poor that I'm loving? Like, if I'm not loving the poor, what does that mean? And Jesus goes, yeah. You guys feeling it? Okay, Jesus said it, not me. Uh, what about James, the brother of Jesus? He probably knew Jesus pretty well. I mean, he grew up with him. Um, it's interesting in uh, the original packaging of the New Testament, they used to put the Gospels and then the book of James second after that and then Paul's letters. So people go like, why do people have such an issue with like the faith and works thing and whatever that comes out of the book of James? And they're like, because we're so shaped by Paul that we just think like, does... but then you read Jesus and you're like, he says stuff like this all the time. So this is what James says. James says, acceptable religion before God is loving the vulnerable. Um, James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, 
to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. All right, a quick note on this. If that's acceptable religion, what's unacceptable religion? Religion that um, involves you being polluted by the world or adultery and religion that doesn't include you loving the poor. Jesus goes and James goes, God doesn't accept that. Um, And then just to add on to it, just to stack it up, uh, James's example of fake faith, faith without works, a dead faith, is uh, a faith that's stingy towards the poor. So I'm not gonna read this. Actually, I'm gonna read it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith so they can, they can say all the right doctrines. Can such faith save them? No. What's his example? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. Brother, I'll pray for you that God provides all your needs. I love you. I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna go to the prayer space and just labor over you in prayer. But you don't do anything? Guess what? James would say, he goes, that's fake faith, that's not real. So which, by the way, is very interesting because the Old Testament, how does God measure the health of somebody? Idolatry? Love of the poor. What does James say? What's acceptable religion? Keeping yourself from idolatry and loving the poor. It's one and the same. How you guys doing? So this is the point in the sermon. I'm 27 minutes in and I have a lot more to say. Um, I literally, I had a thought where I was like, I feel like I might just say, go and blessed are you if you do what God says, and then I just stop speaking now. Um, because I just feel like God's word is so clear, and that leaves a ton of answers, uh, questions unanswered. Um, but I just, I, I, I want to put that in front of you, and I want you to wrestle with it. Um, and then I, I want to share a few thoughts as we wrap up now. Um, Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to adjust with my mind with the time to say something that matters. <clears throat> okay, I'm going I'm to say a few things very quick. Um, I want to answer three quick questions. How did we get to where we're at? Like, how did we get to a place where, like, we're confused about this stuff and where the church is in the place that it is? How do we get back on track? And I want to show you a glimpse from my life of what this, what this looks like. So I'm going to start off with an illustration, and hopefully I'm just going to make some points and... I pray God speaks to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to this community through this time. God, um, help me to filter my words and help me to um, say the things that you want me to say. Amen. Um, So in the 1970s, there was a plane crash uh, on Eastern Airlines Flight 401. It was a flight that was going from JFK to Miami. And the story of the plane crash goes, there was a, so the plane was flying and all of a sudden this, this light came on uh, that signaled that the landing gear was broken or wasn't working. And so um, the whole crew gets involved, the pilot, the co-pilot, the flight attendants, they're like, oh my gosh, we're flying to Miami and the landing gear isn't working. So I don't know if you've flown planes before, but typically when the landing gear doesn't work, that's just not a good sign. Uh, and so they're flying and what happens is one of the pilots thinks he turns the plane on autopilot and, the, so, so, and then all of a sudden, everybody starts focusing on the light and focusing on the problem at hand. So the whole crew is like, what's going on with the landing gear? They're brainstorming, they're talking and all this stuff. Meanwhile, they didn't realize that the actual goal of flying to Miami and putting the plane in autopilot to get us there, they forgot to do that because they got so distracted by this detail. And what happened was they literally just flew into the ground because 
they were focusing on the landing gear. And it's a terrible story, but the, the point to be made is when you focus on the details, you compromise the main mission at hand. And so I think when you ask the question, like, how did we even get here as a church? How do we even get here as God's people where the world is even saying stuff like this to us? I think a lot of it comes down to, it's like, we've just gotten so lost in the details. We've gotten, we've gotten lost in the landing gear light that's been blinking. So the landing gear light is like doctrine, church events, spiritual disciplines, managing sin, all this stuff where we're like hyper-focused on our spiritual disciplines, hyper-focused on having good doctrine. And good doctrine is absolutely important. We're like hyper-focused on like not looking at this this week or making sure I'm kind to my boss. And as a community, we just reinforce that with one another. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, the whole community has built itself around things. And Jesus is like, but loving the poor and justice was like what those things was. Like spiritual disciplines is trying to form you into the type of person that then can go and actually do justice. But we just go like, oh, I missed, yeah, I missed, missed a day. I got you, buddy. I'm going to pray for you. You're going to get it next week. You know what I'm saying? And we have this whole church, like, culture, and I'm like, do you, ever, you know what I'm talking about? And so I think this is what happens. Like, it just sneaks in, and I'm not trying, I'm going to push on things, but I'm just telling you, as a pastor, it is so much easier to rally people to play pickleball than to love the poor. And I'm like, what if we were as passionate about the poor as we were pickleball? It's like, hey, dude, what are you doing Friday? I'm busy. Want to play pickleball? Let me adjust my schedule. I'll see what I got. Hey, man, so you want to love the poor with me Friday night? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Dude, that's so, dude, I'll pray for you. You know, you know what I'm saying? But it's just so easy to rally around things that isn't the main thing. And so the question that I want to ask you I'm going to ask you very personally, is what is at the center of your faith that was not at the center of Jesus' faith? What is at the center of our faith as a community that was not at the center of Jesus' faith? Because can I, can I maybe offer this to you as a thought? Maybe you're centering your faith on something that Jesus never asked you to center your faith on. And he's asking you to reevaluate what you're actually seeking. Um, and listen, this is not a you suck, go and be better sermon. Um, this sermon is for the person here who goes, I want to follow Jesus. Like, I really, really want to follow Jesus. This sermon is for you because Jesus says, I've told you and I want to show you and I really want to re-remind you what it means to follow me. Because here's the thing, nobody comes up to you or comes up to me in my like, time of pastoring or seven tenor, it's like, hey, I'm really thinking about trying the Pharisee route out. Like, I just think, I've been thinking, praying, reading the scriptures, I'm like, I'm just gonna try this Pharisee thing out, where I like slowly become irrelevant to the needs of the world, and I start tithing mint and rue, and I, like nobody like sets off to become a Pharisee. It just happens, doesn't it? Um, and so I think messages like this are good because they cause us to re-examine what we've centered our faith on and what we are actually using around us, the spiritual disciplines, the fighting off sin, putting to death, so that we can go and be God's witnesses out in the world and love the poor and vulnerable and the hurting. Does that make sense? All right, how do we get back on track? Um, okay. I gotta share, I'll share a couple things here and then I'll, and then I'll wrap it up. <clears throat> I think oftentimes when we talk about doing justice or loving the poor, um, the, only thing, the only person that we can picture is the person on the side of the road holding a sign. 
And then all the questions come in. It's just like, well, if I give them, you know, just all, you know, we all do it. So I don't need to fill that in. But one of the things that literally, guys, revolution, like revolutionized my life in a new mindset about serving the poor is when I actually realized who the poor in the scriptures were. So Tim Mackey, um, he's the author of the Bible Project, Old Testament theologian. He says this, in Hebrew culture, being poor wasn't just about money. It was primarily about low social status. Women, children, the sick, people on the margins. So he goes, being poor could actually include people who had money. Like tax collectors had tons of money, but they were on the social margins. So tax collectors had money, but they're considered poor. They were considered outsiders. So when we think of loving the poor today, don't just think of the person with a sign asking for money at an intersection. Think of people who are outside whatever the in is of culture. Does that make sense? So what I started to realize was it's not just people who are financially poor, it's people who are relationally poor. So you might work, you might be killing it at a business, but the person who's poor, who makes a lot of money, that's your coworker, is the person that all your coworkers love each other and they make fun of that person. And they put them on the outside. In the biblical perspective, that's the poor. And let me give you a secret. If you really want to love the poor, they're probably in this room. Because the world doesn't have a place for them, so where do they show up? So if you want to get close to the poor, get to know your community. And you start to realize there's tons of people, maybe me or you or somebody in this room, who may not be financially poor, but the world has gone, you don't belong. And we go, that's loving the poor. So I've, I've changed my mind to, to be like, loving the poor means who around me do I know or who do I see that the world has pushed to the outskirts and how can I bring them to the center of my friendship? Because Jesus goes, the last will be first and the first will be last. So shouldn't that be how the church is? Does that make sense? So let me give you five steps um, to learn to love the poor and then um, I will share one quick story and then we'll pray and we'll worship Jesus because he's beautiful. Uh, the first thing that you need to do, oftentimes we're like, I'm going to love the poor. You're going to charge out of here and I'm like, stop, stop. The first thing that we do is listen. Uh, the first step to loving the poor and doing justice is to listen. Um, and specifically, I want to say this, listen to the cries of culture. So oftentimes, the, really, the church is really good at listening to the world, but to criticize the world. And I'm going to get real specific here. They're like, they're all Marxist and woke people out there. We listen to the world like they're passionate about racial justice and empathy, and the world is working trying to resolve it. Like we just point fingers and we criticize BLM. And listen, sin has affected all those things, absolutely. But as Christians, our primary disposition is to listen to the cries of culture, to empathize, not to criticize. It doesn't mean that we don't care about truth, but it means we're bent towards compassion first. And so I want to challenge you when you watch the news or you're listening to somebody you don't agree with, or they're saying something that you just know is not true, you listen to empathize, not to criticize if you're a follower of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, the second thing is to learn. Um, Let's just be honest. There's a lot of injustices in this world that we just don't know about. Um, You have to talk to friends. You have to read books. you You have to ask and read. Listen, our world is permeated with injustices. For example... 
when it came to um, racial reconciliation and equality and all this stuff in 2020, people, people would, I'm, I'm just going to be, here we go. Um, people would always be like, dude, I love people of color. I'm like, I don't, I'm not saying you don't love somebody of color. They're like, there's no such thing as like systemic injustice. There's no such thing. And I was like, first of all, stop listening to the political lens. The Bible talks about system, sin being systemic. The Bible talks about it. Sin is systemic. It's cosmic, it's systemic, it's personal, it's individual, it's all those things. And so we have to start asking bigger questions and not like, are you a racist or are you not? That's not the question. Maybe it is for some people, but the question is, why is there all the, like, wh- like why are there communities that are poor and why are there communities that are wealthy? Why are the poor community predominantly people of color and why is the wealthy community predominantly people who are white? And I don't have all the answers to that, but there's all sorts of stuff that go back to like redlining and all this stuff, all this stuff that you just have to do a little bit of digging and you go, man, our world's really messed up. And we're talking from a kingdom lens here, not a political lens. Does that make sense? Okay, so we learn. The, the next thing is, um, typically when we learn, we're like, all right, we're going to run out the door. And I'm like, don't run out the door. Lament. I think one of the things that God has told me is turn your passion into prayer before you turn it into practice. Turn your passion into prayer before you turn it into practice. doesn't mean we don't have an opportunity to love that you don't show up in love. It means take your passion for people and go to the prayer room and seek the God who can actually do something about it. And then you don't run and try to find people who you can love. You look at who is around you. You look, number four. You look who is poor, marginalized, and excluded in your neighborhood, in your apartment complex, in your school class, at your work. You look around you, and then lastly, you love. You take action, you speak up, you do something, you care, you show mercy, and you do justice. All right, do you guys want me to share a story of what's going on in my life, or do you want me just to close it out? Share a story. All right, we might go a little later. All right, it's not that profound, but I want to share it. So I was prepping for this sermon, and I was just, you know, I'm, convic- I'm just as convicted as you guys. I believe a pow- to, to deliver a powerful sermon, it has to have a powerful impact on you before on the community. I really believe that. And so I'm prepping for this, loving the vulnerable, the outsider, and um, I got new neighbors literally right next door, and I have a deep heart for being missional in my neighborhood. I'm not good at it, and I've, whatever. Uh, so I walk outside, I, 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 go, I go on a, a walk with my wife, and I realize, oh my, oh my gosh, like our neighbors are outside, I'm like, Crystal, let's go meet them. So I show up, and uh, so I, I'll, I'll, his name's John for the sake of the story, and I was, John is like an Indian man, um, and Native American Indian. And so I'm like, hey John, like, uh, nice to meet you, like, I'm so glad you're here, like, welcome to the neighborhood. He's like, dude, I've been here a month. And I was like, I know, but welcome to the neighborhood, I haven't met you yet. And, and uh, He's like, dude, he's like, I'm struggling. I was like, well, here we go. Like, let's, let's do this. <clears throat> I was like, well, what's going on? And he's like, well, dude, I was just walking through this na- my neighborhood, our neighborhood. And he goes, and yum- somebody in this neighborhood yelled out their car window, get the F out of here. You don't belong here. I was like, wow. He doesn't fit the Gilbert stereotype. Uh, I was like, dude, I'm so, he's like, is it, is it my skin color? He's like, I don't know what this, he's like, and then I go and walk to Walmart and cops stop me because 
they say I look like a guy that they're trying to find. He's like, I have nothing on me. I'm like, I'm just trying to walk to Walmart. And he's like, dude, it's just so hard, you know? Um, and I was like, dude, I am so sorry. Like, I am so sorry. And there's another lady there who is Hispanic, kind of speaks broken English. Somehow it comes out that I am a Christian, which I'm very thankful it came out early. And she goes, hey, can you pray for John? I was like, oh, you know when you're caught off guard? Like, yes. <laughs> so I, 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 pray, I pray for John. And uh, it was a really sweet moment. I was like, Crystal, that was our first interaction with our neighbors. That's amazing. And so we go on our walk, come back. I go to sleep, wake up the next morning. And John is out back with my wife when she's coming back home from the gym. I'm like, you know, like genuinely, I'm like, well, what's, okay, like, what's going on? And he's like, hey, can I talk to you for a second? I was like, yeah, I'm running to work, but what's going on? He goes, "Um, can you pray for me? He goes, I just, uh, I've been having a really hard time. He's like, I know you're a man of faith, and I just, can you pray for me? I was like, absolutely. So I pray with him, and then he starts telling me he's a, uh, alcoholic, all this stuff. And what I realized, what God taught me in that moment was, listen, when I talk about going to do justice and having this characterize your life, this isn't something you have to like go out and seek to do. You just have to pay attention to who I'm bringing around you. And the point I want to make here is like some of you want to be used by God and you think you're too sinful to be used by God. That is not true. You just might be too busy to be used by God. And so what God asked me is like, do you even have space to do justice? Do you have space for the people that I am bringing into your midst? And will you listen and love when it's time? Sound good? I'm just going to end it there because there's all sorts of things I could say. Let's, let's pray and let's ask God um, for mercy and help. Lord, I love you. I'm so thankful for you. Um, Yeah, God, thank you for what you said to this community, what you said to me. God, forgive us for our lack of love. Um, Forgive us for not seeing those you've put in front of us. Um, But Lord, we want to follow you, uh, and we want to be led by your spirit. So I pray that as we sing right now, these wouldn't be empty words. I pray that we would sing from repentant hearts. I pray that we'd love the people that you've put in front of us. And Jesus, because if we want to follow you, Jesus, you say when you love the least of these, you love me. So if we want to follow you and meet you, we have to meet you in the face of the least of these. So Lord, teach us, empower us, convict us. Lord, we repent and we commit ourselves to following you. We love you, Lord. Amen.